It is a very good afternoon to Rebecca Davis from the Daily Maverick with Plan B. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Mike. Nice to hear your voice. It's been a while. Thank you very much. Everyone always looks forward to hearing your voice at this time of the week. I tell you what they don't enjoy. I've had feedback already. Us banging on about vaccines and COVID, but bang on we must. Bang on, we must. You know, I do find it kind of astonishing that the same people who are most opposed to vaccination seem to be the people who most want lockdowns lifted as well. I feel like you have to choose one or the other. Right? <laughs> you have to and make a lot of choice. You have to make a lot of choices here about vaccines you do. or not. Uh, on a slightly unrelated note, Mike, I was thinking that one of the other things we've lost during this pandemic is, remember when room service, you'd go to a hotel and you get room service, and that would be the greatest treat and luxury in the world. Now, because all we've been able to do, basically, is order Mr. D, get takeaways, meet them at home. Room service no longer seems like an appealing option at all. I mentioned this because I'm going away this weekend, and I thought... Room service? God, no. Please, let no. me out of my room. I want to eat in a restaurant. I want to eat somewhere nice and decent and public. Exactly. That's right. Anyway, back to the vaccinations. We're getting to a point now, Mike, where I think we have to accept that our problem is not going to be running out of vaccines as it once seemed. It is going to be running out of people to vaccinate. It does seem like we're hitting a wall. We're sitting on rates of about 20% vaccination. We've hit the lowest per day injection rate for a while. And just anecdotally, I'm also hearing that, you know, we're just running into a problem. We're running into a problem here because people don't want to get vaccinated. Why do they not want to get vaccinated? Well, a number of reasons. I was speaking to a friend who works at a big corporate who said that some of her colleagues have said they're not getting vaccinated because they think they can't be asked to work from the office then. So the desire to work from home trumps everything else. And I'm not sure how corporates will go about dealing with that. There's a variety of other reasons, obviously conspiracy theories, etc. But the point is that we've got a problem. And I was talking to a friend from Morocco this weekend, Mike, and Morocco's done incredibly well. I mean, it's by far the best on the African continent, one of the world leaders in terms of vaccine programs. And I said, how did you do it? How did you get so many people vaccinated? He said it was very simple. The king, the Moroccan king, went on television and he got vaccinated and that proved it was safe and everyone followed suit. I said, fine, but I mean, so did President Ramaphosa, so did all our politicians. He said, well, they're not the king, are they? His point was serious, that the king in Morocco holds this position of absolute trust, apparently among the general population, to the point where you see him doing it, you know, it's okay. And it got me thinking, Mike, that maybe the issue is that we just haven't asked the right people, the, the, the people who are trusted by most of the population, to get vaccinated very publicly. But the question is, who are those people? You know, we've had the clergy stand up, we've had the Archbishop of Cape Town stand up and say, please do this. All the politicians you can think of. Who is it who South Africans trust? And this is a big problem because South Africans trust in a variety of institutions is apparently at its lowest since 2006. This is according to the latest Afrobarometer poll. Only a minority of South Africans say they trust the president, 38%. Only a minority trust parliament. And for the first time ever in these surveys, only a minority even trust the courts of law. But you know who they do trust, Mike Wills? They trust Media broadcasters. Oh, the misguided fools. (laughs) I mean, it blew my mind too. So your listeners who are tired of you cracking on about vaccines, I'm afraid, might have to get used to it. If these are the people who the majority of the population trust, then maybe it's the responsibility of media broadcasters. Okay, I'll do do my bit. I have been double vaccinated. 
I didn't do it publicly on air, but I have been. So please, if you're listening, go and do it. It makes very good sense. I've no doubt you are double vaccinated, Rebecca. All I right. Only as of this week, but okay. yes, and I'm feeling very good as a result. I uh, I was intrigued by that report on Daily Maverick about was it the Western Cape Health MEC who was saying that uh, what women should do is quote withhold sex from their husbands until they get vaccinated. Is that right? It was the Eastern Cape, I think. Yeah, the Eastern Cape. Very Eastern yeah. Cape thing. Extraordinary. Deepers. Okay. All right. I don't know if that'll have the undue effect, but we'll take anything we can. Right. Very important issue linked to COVID is our use of alcohol bans. Massively controversial economically, socially. People say we're the only ones that have done this. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? What's the evidence on this? Well, as you say, it's very contentious here, but it turns out we're not the only ones who have implemented an alcohol ban, although not for COVID reasons. In India, in April 2016, the state of Bihar imposed a full alcohol ban, and their penalties really, really stringent. The possibility of life imprisonment initially for anyone caught drinking or manufacturing alcohol. And the reason they imposed this was after a referendum was because domestic violence and rape and assault on women in general were just so sky high that the women of the state basically took control and just said, we cannot have this anymore. We are physically padlocking alcohol shops because we're sick of it. This is really interesting because, Mike, there's a a lot of talk about the correlation between alcohol and domestic violence. We've heard of it here too. And also the thought that if you withhold alcohol, that women may be at risk as well. So it's very interesting to see some hard data on this. And the answer, it turned out, was that over the past, what's been six years or so since since the, the ban was implemented, the women experiencing spousal abuse fell very, very marginally, only from 56% to 42%. So the idea is that actually it was an incorrect assumption that alcohol was the primary driver of that violence, that actually there are far more, and this isn't a shock, as a deep-seated patriarchal issues going on there, that alcohol bans simply cannot touch. And I'm sure that that is going to be the case when we finally pass all the data from South Africa too, that alcohol bans can fix a lot of things, but I highly doubt violence on women is going to be one of them. Very, very interesting data and important data for us, but I hope it won't be taken too literally by people saying, oh, alcohol's got nothing to do with it. It obviously has something to do with it, but it's not an underlying uh, issue is what you're saying. That's exactly it, that it clearly a drunk, angry man is in many ways more dangerous than a sober, angry man, or perhaps less dangerous in certain aspects. I mean, a lot of this is is up in the air, but that it's not alcohol that causes a man to develop gender anger issues, put it that way. Okay, let's talk about conventional and unconventional wisdom about the Internet and about social media generally. Yeah, this is another kind of myth-fusting issue. There's been this assumption that people are mean on the Internet because it's the Internet, that the Internet provides anonymity and kind of a freedom to express yourself in ways which you, a mild-mannered individual, a gentleman, Mike, would never do in real life, that online Mike suddenly develops this alternative persona that can be really horrible and politically hostile, etc. But in real life, if I met you, I'd be stunned at how nice you are. Now, new research from Danish and American researchers suggests this is absolutely not the case. That in fact, in the majority of cases, if you're nasty online, you're also nasty in the real world, which I think is really interesting. You said, Mike, that you were not at all surprised by this result. Not at all. I, I, I have encountered too many um, very unpleasant people in environments like pubs, trains, public spaces, bries, people uttering utter gibberish, offensive stuff. 
I just think now all that happens is those people have a public-facing forum, whereas in the past it was very limited. That's exactly right. So the data, and I'm quoting here from this article, which is on Gizmodo, if anyone's interested, that data pointed to online interactions largely mirroring offline behavior with people predisposed to aggressive status-seeking behavior, just as unpleasant in person as behind a veil of online anonymity, and choosing to be jerks as part of a deliberate strategy rather than as a consequence of the format involved. So if you are one of those people who's continually, you know, just flying off a handle on the internet and leaving unpleasant comments on forums, you've got to ask yourself, are you perhaps a bit like that in real life too? Another unsurprising finding, I think, non-hostile people generally just do not get involved in political discussions online. It's not that uh, a particular political um, uh, sway predisposes some people towards being aggressive. It's just that if you're not actually that type of a person, if you're not keen for a life of, you know, being shouted at on the internet, you just don't get into political discussions, which is probably a good rule of thumb for all of us anyway. As the study says, online trolls are actually just something that rhymes with trolls all the time. Okay, very important question. Why are pandas dying out? Pandas are dying out because they cannot be bothered to have sex. And this is a finding that I think will really resonate with a lot of human beings during lockdown. Turns out that when pandas are happy, they simply cannot be bothered to find a mate. New study in conservation biology suggested if pandas find the perfect habitat, it's moderately low-lying area, it's cool, it's got bamboo, it's far from humans, they just settle down. They don't want to go anywhere and they certainly don't want to find a mate. So the takeaway from this is if you want pandas to get off their lazy asses and mate, you have to ensure that they are slightly somewhat discontented. You can only keep them at 80% of contentment or otherwise they simply <laughs> just cannot be stirred to do it. I really think, Mike, that is a highly relatable finding, isn't it? <laughs> Rebecca, it is indeed. Thank you very much. Great story. Rebecca Harris, Rebecca Harris, Rebecca Davis from Daddy Maverick with her weekly Plan B.